Yes, Cheeseland, the only amusement park in the world dedicated entirely to cheese. Why, we're so dedicated to cheese that we even built the park, yes, the whole park, out of cheese. Ride the grilled cheese coaster through the cheddar forest. Plunge down Gorgon's Hole Mountain in the perilous crumbler. Come over to Goat Island and slide through the Chevre Hills. Play in the crumbled feta bowl. Experience the thrills and spills of the Nacho Express. Take your someone special for a romantic float down the Fondue River. Yes, Cheeseland. They said, don't do it. It'll be disgusting. But we didn't listen to them. Five acres of wall-to-wall cheese, Parmesan pathways. Take the Manchego tram, the Jack Cheese wading pools. We recommend that you bring several changes of clothes and try to come on a day where the temperatures don't get above 50. Yes, if you love cheese, I mean really love cheese, then Cheeseland is the place for you and your family. Cheese, 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 there's nothing better than cheese. So take my hand to Cheeseyland, oh please, oh please, oh please. Team, we sent Blue out into the world to meet the meet Petaluma's own principal of McKinley School, Matthew Harris. Now, Matthew is a master of education, a champion of creativity, and an advocate for youth. 
He, along with the teachers and the staff members, have transformed the campus of McKinley School into a diverse, vibrantly colorful, creative place for young people to explore their abilities and challenge their ideas and feel belonging. And I'm pretty excited to get the opportunity to listen in on their conversation. So, here we go. Take it away, Blue. All right. Hey, thanks, Jill and Jen. Um, I'm down here at McKinley Elementary School in Petaluma uh, with Mr. Matthew Harris, principal. Um, how you doing? I'm doing well, Blue. It's, been, it's a beautiful day outside. All the kids are here at school. It's a good, good, good day. Yeah, I love just even hearing like the little echoes of school. The, the environment of a school is a wonderful environment. I like it. Absolutely. Question. Can I call you Matthew or Mr. Harris? Either one. Okay. Can I tell you how funny it is and how difficult it is to use first names with a principal while you're on a school campus? <laughs> how, fun, how funny is it? It's really difficult. <laughs> I'm struggling. So I might use Mr. Harris today. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, I have a few questions because uh, as I was trying to do some uh, research for the interview, uh, Mr. Harris, uh, it is very difficult to find information on you that is not uh, of, a, of a certain variety. And what I mean is... When you're doing research and you look up Matthew Harris, Petaluma, you are a very impressive character. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, you've got uh, degrees upon degrees. You've been teaching a lot. You've been doing great things in the community. And uh, it's very overwhelming and inspiring just to read your story, sir. Thank you, Blue. I really appreciate that. So nice. Yeah, thanks for coming to Petaluma. So, hey, how did you come here? How long ago did you come to our little town of Petaluma? Yeah, so I've... Um I was actually born and raised in Michigan and went to school out in Michigan and uh, was my first teaching, my real, my first real teaching experience was down in Southern California in Los Angeles. And I thought I was going to stay in Los Angeles for forever. I thought I had found, found the promised land until I met my wife who grew up in, in uh, Northern California. And when she, she suggested we come up and look at, look at, we got married up in, um, in Glen Ellen. Oh, yeah. And we had our wedding reception here in Petaluma, and I just fell in love with this town and this oh, area. Yeah. And so six years ago, we came up, found a little school, McKinley School, and when I got the job to become principal here, I was ecstatic, and we, uh, we've we been here ever since, about six years. That's fantastic. Can I, t I have a question about the campus? Because one of the things I noticed right away is how beautiful the art is on the walls and even on the ground. You've got art everywhere. Was it like that before you came, or was that something that you engineered? It was not like that when I, when I first got here. When I first got here, there were some areas on campus that were um, just not not what you would want to see on an elementary campus and so i i talked with a few local artists and um one in a couple in particular but one one guy in particular named maxfield bala and he's a a, a young local dynamic artist he's great yeah he's fantastic he's done murals from at, at Lagunitas, he's worked with Coca-Cola, he's got one downtown Petaluma, and I asked him if he was interested in coming and working with students, because I didn't, I didn't want it to just be his artwork on a school campus, I wanted it to be <clears throat> student work with, with his touch on it. Wow. And so he has done at least, I, I don't even know, six, five or six different murals on our campus. In the, over the last few several years, the change is stunning. Like to walk into a place with uh, live art, like it's vibrant. It makes you feel alive. Makes you feel excited. I love it. Absolutely. And one one that I'm particularly proud of that 
um, that Maxfield did, and he and I he and I talked a lot about was the idea was we had done several murals on the wall, and I said, you know, in kindergarten we're we're redesigning this kinder area. Can we put a mural on the ground? And he yeah. said, I've never done that before. Let's look and see how we can do it. And if you look in our kinder yard, we got a we have a, a living sort of a living ground that the kids play on. It's just an, it's an awesome addition to our school. It's so great. If there's anybody in downtown Petaluma, like Maya or anybody that you know to get more murals happening yeah. around town, please talk to them. All right. Whatever <laughs> magic you worked here, do it in town, man. I love it. All right. Uh, I, this is a funny question. And maybe, Do you have children, Mr. Harris? I do. I have four young children. All right. Well, here's a question for a principal slash father. Yes. When your daughter wakes up, it's time to go to school. And I'm guessing if she's like most kids, she's going to say, I don't want to go to school. Is this familiar? That does sound a little bit familiar. I have I have two daughters, and one of them is a morning person like me, and she just jumps right out of bed and is ready to go. And I have my oldest daughter, who is a little bit like her mother and has a hard time waking up in the morning. Yeah, uh, well, at the house where I live, there's a lot of people that all have a hard time waking up in the morning. So uh, the chorus of, I don't want to wake up, leave me alone, is loud and constant. So as a father and as the principal of the school, how do you get somebody to come to school? What do you say to your kid to get them to come to school? Do you have any magic secret tips? Well, this morning, for example, when I wake up, when I, I go into the girls' room and I... Usually, I, 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 we sing them some sort of silly little song. That's great. And go over and scratch their back and tell them it's time to wake up. Yeah. Wake up, wake up. And I tell them, you know, it's Friday. It's fun Friday. We're going to have a great day today. Right. And I go down and I tell them we're, we're going to have a good breakfast. And I tell them what special thing I made for breakfast. That's great. And usually gets them to, to sort of stir just a little bit and start thinking about getting up. So. So is there anything that you work on from the principal side of things at school to like make sure that kids want to come? Is there anything that you do so that all the parents of the world have something to trumpet for their kids in the morning? I think if 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 kids love their classroom and love their love their love their teacher, love the fellow students, love their school, then they're going to have a much easier time getting up in the morning. So it's a, it's a lot it's much easier to get up in the morning when you have a fun, exciting place to go to. Absolutely. I agree. Um, you've made so many lovely changes, and this school is such a pleasant place to be, and the community around here is just so wonderful. All the events, they just bring people together in a great way. And uh, so from your perspective, if you walk into, say, any school in the world, you just walk into a school what is the thing, maybe the most important thing that you look at and you say, this is what you need in order to build up a great school? What do you think that is? I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think that the community, you have to, you have to build a great community of learners. You have to, um, I, tell, I tell my staff over and over that um, I want every single student in the school to have to to go home and say someone at school cares about me. There's an adult on campus. There's someone I can go to when I have a, when I have a problem. And I want them. I want adults need to know the names of our students and be interested in and and just really love and have compassion for all all the kids on our campus. And I think that starts to build the the community among the students. And then it's bringing our parents in, getting to know the parents, and inviting them to come in and be part of our school because. Schools don't work without without the family support. 
Right. Yeah, like you you are an institution inside of the community. So you just build up all the love and all that good stuff that you need to keep it going. That's right. I like that. <laughs> I think it's working out quite well, sir. Thank you. I just have one uh, other quick line of questioning. Sure, Blue. I, I was reading, and in addition to, you're a master of education. Do you ever make people call you master of education? <laughs> I don't make people call me master of education. I do have my master's degree. I have, I have a couple of master's degrees in, in education. Right. Yeah, That's incredible. Uh, do you ever introduce yourself as master of education? <laughs> I've never introduced uh, I may have been introduced at a, at my, at my cer- at a ceremony like that, uh, but I've never introduced myself like that. No. Something to consider. You know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any fancy titles. My name's just Blue, but if I was a master of something, I would probably like wear a fancy a hat or something, you know? <laughs> Tell people. Right. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. Something to think about. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. But you, uh, in addition to all the fancy stuff, I saw finally, I was able to find something that said, you like to read. I love to read. Well, and you also have a family with, uh, with children, right? So you must be reading stories with your kids. Absolutely. We read all the time at my house. Is there a favorite story that you enjoy to read to your kids, like a read-aloud story? Boy, hmm. It'd be hard to pick just one. Um, you can pick as many right, as you want. I, I love reading some of my favorite books, I think, when I was growing up, were some of the Beatrix Potter, Potter stories, the uh, Peter Rabbit, uh, Benjamin yeah. Bunny, and particularly uh, Mr. Jeremy Fisher. Yeah. And I love reading those books. I actually have a book that was given to me when I was three years old. And I have a three-year-old son, and so he and I like to read that book cover to cover. We've probably read it hundreds of times. That so. is so beautiful from three-year-old to three-year-old. That's right. That's incredible. <laughs> hey, way to keep a, keep your books. Yeah. That ain't, that ain't easy. <laughs> no. We lose a lot of books around our house. I know that. Um, and then uh, when you're reading the books, do you do all the voices and stuff? I do, yes. Isn't so, that wonderful? It is wonderful, yeah. Oh, that's just fantastic. And I, I also, I, I speak Spanish and French. And so I, we have some books in Spanish and French. And uh, my, when, they're, when, my, when my kids are re- were really little, they loved it when I would read to them in another language. And then they, they got to a certain point and said, Daddy, read it in English. And so then I would try to do both. I do, I do both every once in a while. No way. And it's, it's a lot of fun for them to hear, hear those different languages. Are there any books that you have in Spanish or French that you don't have in English? Like books that, um, that yeah, just books in another language that you can't get in English that you can read in the other language? We I do we do have some we have yeah we have some that go back and forth we have some that are kind of bilingual um, one that I'm thinking about is called Mon Papa est un géant and it's about my dad is a giant and the kids love reading that with me what a great story uh-huh. but I've never seen that in English that is yeah. it just made me uh, realize how big the world is when you mentioned that uh, Mr Harris because. Uh, Kids in other countries, they probably have a whole slew of books that we never even heard about. Exactly. That's so cool. And you can bring that from three different cultures. Right. Truly a master <laughs> of education. <laughs> Very impressive and wonderful. Are there any great books in French? Uh, what about the, the one about the little prince? Is that oh, a French book? I was going to mention that one. That is a great, great book. It's a French book. It's been translated into English. Right. And it's got a beautiful, beautiful story about... Um, um, about a little boy who tra- who travels and gets lost in the desert and yeah just a, I highly recommend that book The Little Prince Le Petit Prince wow yeah it's just nice to hear you speak another language <laughs> that's real cool yeah thanks Blue 
Mr. Harris, I don't think I have any further questions, but if you have anything else you'd like to share with Benedettiville or just radio listeners about anything at all, feel free. Yeah, I think one thing, um, I I actually had the great opportunity and chance to listen to your radio show on Sunday, and it was, was, I, I, I read a lot of books and I listen to a lot of podcasts, and and I, it was such a nice feeling that, that, that you had already been to McKinley and you had interviewed some of our first graders. Yeah. And my daughter, who was in first grade, was so excited to hear herself on the radio. That's great. It reminded me a little bit of my childhood, listening to the radio and waiting for the show to start and yeah. building that anticipation. And so I, I just really appreciate, Blue, all that you're doing and all that the, the great people behind Benedettiville are, all the work that they're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it was totally our pleasure. Uh, in closing, uh, if any mysterious or magical happenings ever happen around McKinley, uh, we got an investigation team. I'm one of the leaders of the investigation team. We're called the Guardians. You just give us a call, Mr. Harris. We'll be here on the double to check it out. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Watch out for trolls. (laughs) All right. Thanks very much. Back to you, Gio and Jen. Thanks, Blue. And thank you, Mr. Harris, for taking time out to talk with us during this busy time of year. We are so grateful for all that educators do for the youth in our community all year. And we know that everyone is looking forward to some summertime Fun. What are your favorite kinds of stories to read? I usually like science fiction because I feel like it's cool to just summarize what might happen in the future. And I really like science. And I kind of like it because it can be like fantasy mixed with the real world. So it could actually happen. Um, my favorite story is um, the dragons eating tacos. I like make-believe stories. I like picture books and chapter books. Uh, uh, dinosaurs love underpants and love underpants books and science. Oh, it is story time here in Benedettiville. And Gio Benedetti wrote us a lovely, sweet little story called Chocolate Milk. And it's not real milk, unfortunately, because that sounds delicious right now, but it's a story in three parts, and um, we're going to listen to the first part right now. Consider it uh, sort of like a sweet treat for your ears. Saturday morning, 9 a.m., Rose Gallingham's grandparents' house. Rose Gallingham is working on her treasure map. She has been awake since 7 o'clock a.m. Her mom and dad are spending a weekend at the beach for their anniversary, and Rose is staying with her grandmother and grandfather. Her grandparents were both up before she was, and Rose's grandmother made her famous float-away pancakes. That's how light and fluffy they were. Rose's grandfather would glob on great heavy pats of butter and great puddles of syrup. I have to, just to keep them on my plate, he would say. They were delicious. After breakfast was cleaned up and put away, after Rose was dressed, after the gardens were watered, and after the floor was swept, it was playtime. Rose chose to draw. She was working on her treasure map while her grandmother packed a picnic lunch and her grandfather futzed around his workshop. 
They had read pirate stories before bed last night, and Rose was filled with adventure, eye patches, ropes, treasures, maps, parrots, and the tang of salty sea air. Avast ye, Grandma, was how she had greeted her grandmother that morning. The map was complicated, full of dotted lines, landmarks around Lettsburg Park, which was where they were headed with their picnic, strange symbols, drawings, and anything at all that Rose could imagine and seemed to be piratey. Finally, she put her markers down. The map was done. The picnic basket was packed. Grandpa had the old van puffing and plunking away. It was time to go. Saturday morning, 9 a.m., across town, the headquarters of Flarnigan's Chocolates. The Mink was reviewing his mission with his boss, the Panther. The Mink was the top spy for Flarnigan's Chocolates. The Mink was not his real name, and he was not, in fact, a Mink. But spies had to have secret names, and this one was his. Most chocolate companies didn't have a spy division, but Flarnigan was a very sneaky and dirty type of candy maker, the kind who had a spy division. The mink had been the one to steal the salted caramel recipe from Turner's Sweet Shop five years ago, leading to its closure. It had been the mink behind the butter shortage that closed down old man Tucker's toffee tower two years ago, and the mink was the one they had called when all the kids started going to Yolanda's yummy yogurt yurt, and it was the mink who had dumped the bag of ants into the vanilla yogurt dispenser. The mink was a very good spy. He wasn't a very good person, but he was an excellent and very thorough spy. The panther, the mink's boss, was reviewing their latest mission over a breakfast of dry toast and water. The mission was to steal the chocolate milk recipe from Farmer Andy's dairy. Farmer Andy was a beloved community member, a kind and gentle man with a patient and wise demeanor. His chocolate milk was a family recipe handed down to him by his mother's mother's mother. She had grown up among the finest chocolatiers in Switzerland, and the recipe was a closely kept and well-guarded family secret. Flarnigan wanted that recipe. Today was the day. The secret agent, the mole, that had begun working on the farm two years ago had finally gained the trust of Farmer Andy and had seen the recipe. The mole would be bringing the recipe to the mink today, in just over an hour. The panther was reviewing the secret spy code with the mink. It was very important that they all use the secret spy code, since the spies of Flarnigan's chocolates did not know each other, and even if they did, they were always wearing clever disguises. Very clever ones. It kept everything extra secret. The mink knew the secret codes backwards and forwards. He was, after all, the top spy. Spy number one. He would bring back the chocolate milk recipe, all right. The meeting, like usual was to be at the bench by the duck pond in the middle of Lutzberg Park, 10.30. Saturday morning still, 9 o'clock a.m. still, this time at Farmer Andy's Dairy Farm. The mole had been up for four hours now. He had gathered the herds of cattle for their morning milkings. He had fed them. He had driven the perimeter and checked the fences. He had put out hay and salt licks. He had fed the chickens and collected eggs. He had even driven the tractor around the fields a bit, not because he had to, but because it was the only part of farm life that the mole enjoyed. The mole had been at Farmer Andy's farm for two years, and today was his last day. Today he would be done. He would be free. Never again would he set foot in a field of cow poop. Never again would he wake up in the sleepy, cozy, dark wee hours of the morning to have to go to work. Never again would he have to listen to Farmer Andy go on and on about the sweet, peaceful life of the farm. No, never again. The mole smiled as he rumbled the tractor over the dew-soggy fields. 
It had been a long two years of grueling farm work, and he was done. He had succeeded in fooling Farmer Andy. He had succeeded in being added to the chocolate milk team. He had succeeded, finally, in sneaking behind Farmer Andy while the old-timer made his secret and famous chocolate milk. He had succeeded, thanks to his super spy training and remembering every detail of the recipe and writing it all down in the secret spy code of Flarnigan's chocolates. The strange and impossible-to-understand paper with the secret recipe was even now folded in his front pocket. After these two dirty, stinking, cow-filled years, there was only one thing that he would miss after he spied away with the secret chocolate milk recipe from Farmer Andy's farm. Yes, he would miss breakfast. Farmer Monica, Farmer Andy's wife, was a brilliant cook, and she believed that the more a body ate, the better a body would work. Yes, the mole would miss the mountains of toast, eggs, bacon, ham, sausage, butter, pancakes, French toast, waffles, and, of course, glass after glass of the most delicate, delicious, and chocolatey milk one could imagine. He heard a distant ring, the ring of the breakfast bell. The mole parked the tractor and trotted up to the farmhouse, full of satisfaction for a job well done, joy at his impending freedom, and joy at the smell of Farmer Monica's legendary French toast wafting from the windows. Hey, you. Yeah, you, listening to the radio. Do you love pancakes? Of course you do. Everyone loves pancakes, and that's why you should be subscribing to Pancakes the Magazine. Every month, we'll send you Pancakes the Magazine. Our cover feature this month, David's Grandmother's Buttermilk Pancakes from New Hampshire. See the giant, heavy, spongy, covered in homemade maple buttered, delicious, amazing pancakes right there on the cover. See our special features. How much syrup should you drink every day? When to take breaks from pancakes, maybe when you're sleeping, when you're making a new batch of pancakes while swimming. Read about our topping shootout. Maple syrup versus fake syrup versus jam versus powdered sugar versus yogurt versus cinnamon and sugar versus sour cream, lemon and ice cream versus Nutella. See it all. Read about Cynthia Bergenson, a.k.a. the Pancake Monster, a five-year-old who will only eat pancakes from Lake Forest, California. Read the touching story of Pancakes Without Borders. Amazing, big-hearted chefs who go around the world cooking pancakes for people who have never had pancakes. And, of course, leaving them with a book of collected pancake recipes and ingredients. Our feature this month is on Syrup Face, the all-pancake-slash-breakfast-themed punk band. How do they survive on tour? Well, they bring their own pancake mix, that's how. In medical news, you can read the Dr. Buttershins report. Pancakes are a direct source of happiness, so says Dr. Buttershins. Happiness is directly related to the amount of pancakes someone has eaten. He's a doctor, folks. He can't be wrong. All this and more, every month! In Pancakes, the magazine. Subscribe now. Saturday morning, 10.30 a.m., Lutzberg Park by the Swings. Rose and her grandparents had themselves a lovely time at the swing set. The monkey bars of Lutzberg Park were not the best, but the swings were some of the fastest and highest Rose had ever been on. Also, her grandmother was a world-class swing pusher. 
Her grandfather liked to sit on benches and read his newspaper and talk to strangers. He would holler over every once in a while something like, Come back down, you! You'll get clouds all over your shoes if you're up that high. Or fun things like that. There was a rather terrific game of hide-and-seek they all played, although Rose's grandfather was always easy to find, sitting on the same bench, usually with his newspaper over his head. And balls were kicked, trees were climbed, the map had been followed, and treasure, two marbles and a bottle cap, had been buried and found again, all of this by 10.30 a.m. Yes, 10.30 a.m. found Rose and her grandparents sitting on a bench by the duck pond. This was a tradition of theirs. It was, Rose thought, her grandfather's favorite part about the park picnics, because it involved sitting on a bench. They pulled out an old loaf of bread and threw bits and crumbs to the ducks. The ducks of Lutzburg Park were always ravenous and delightful to feed. They quacked and squawked and strutted about delightfully. This particular Saturday morning, as Rose and her grandparents were feeding the ducks, a tall, lanky man in a dark coat, a dark hat, dark gloves, a dark, droopy mustache, dark glasses, and carrying a dark briefcase, came and sat down next to them. He pulled a newspaper out of his briefcase and began to read. Saturday morning, 10.30 a.m., Lutzburg Park, all over, especially the shadowy, lurky bits. The mink was a very punctual spy. He was at the park by 9.54 a.m., and he flit lurkfully around the park, bush to bush, tree to tree, shadow to shadow, playset to playset. The trick of having a secret meeting with a spy or spies that you had never met before was, well, that you had never met them before. The mink always tried to watch and observe people. His missions required him to blend into all kinds of surroundings, so he would flit and lurk and watch and study. There was the couple smooching over by the rose garden. He watched how they held hands, the twitter-pated look in their eyes, the way the boy would stutter and could barely talk. Interesting, thought the mink. He noted the way the group of moms and dads over by the playset would chat, play, chat, comfort a crying child, chat, and on and on, never looking at each other, always with their eyes on the kiddos, tearing around the slides and stairs and ladders. Interesting, thought the mink. He noted the way that an elderly man sat on a bench and occasionally put his newspaper on his head. Very interesting, thought the mink. When 10.30 a.m. struck, the time for the meeting... The mink was not entirely surprised to see the old man with the newspaper sitting on the bench by the duck pond. The mink ignored the woman and child sitting beside the newspaper man. Newspaper man was feeding the ducks. Spy code steps number one and number two. Check, thought the mink. Step one, the meeting place and the meeting time. On the bench, 10.30. Check. Step two, feeding the ducks. Check. The mink sat down and unfolded his newspaper from his briefcase. Step three, check. Now, the true test. To wait and see if the man to his right, this elderly man who occasionally put newspapers on his head, was actually the mole. The mink waited. He turned a page in his newspaper. Rose's grandfather turned towards the dark stranger and noticed the newspaper. It was the same one that he himself read, the Lutzburg Tribune. Rose's grandfather loved to talk to strangers, especially on park benches. Interesting weather we're having, isn't it? Rose's grandfather said kindly. The mink's face and body remained perfectly still and calm, but inside he tensed and tingled. That was spy code step four. Interesting weather we're having, isn't it? The secret code? Check. The mink folded the paper slowly. He turned towards the old man, who could quite possibly be the mole, and stared at him through his dark glasses and dark, droopy mustache from the shadow of his big-brimmed dark hat. Time for step five. 
Indeed, said the mink in his most cryptic and spyish voice. In weather like this, the cows may not ever come home. Rose's grandfather had grown up on a dairy farm outside of town. He knew that weather had nothing to do with cows coming home. He sized up the dark man, his ridiculous dark clothes, his ridiculous mustache. Yes, thought Rose's grandfather, this man is crazy. Well, good for him. I'll play along, he thought. Rose's grandfather put on his own most cryptic and spyish voice, and he leaned close to the man in black and whispered, The cows are already home. Step six of the spy code, the final step check, thought the mink. The mink congratulated himself on his excellent spy instincts. He had found the mole. Only the mole could have known all of those perfect steps to the spy code. Perfect! Now that the code was complete, he could get down to business. Excellent. Well met, mole. I am the mink. Like I thought, Rose's grandfather thought to himself. He's completely nuts. Do you have it? Is it with you? The mink whispered. Rose's grandfather waggled his eyebrows. Of course. The mink opened up the briefcase eagerly. Wonderful. Whenever you're ready, he said. Quietly, jerking his head this way and that, scanning the park for any watchful eyes. Rose's grandfather had a wonderful idea. Rose, oh, Rose, dear. Rose and her grandmother looked up from the crowd of quacking geese and ducks that had gathered for their bread feast. Yes, Grandpa. Would you be willing to let this nice man here play with your map? The mink's heart leapt. A map! A spy map! Ooh, the mole was better even than he had expected. Oh, yeah, sure, said Rose, excited. With her own treasure hunting completed, she had forgotten about the map. She hopped off the bench, came over, map in hand. She handed it to the mink. The mink stared at the map. He instantly recognized the landmarks around the park. The large pine tree, the swings, the pond, even the drinking fountains were there. Rose was an excellent and very detailed map drawer. The dots were clear. The big red X was clear. The strange symbols and markings were less clear, but the mink hated to be outspied by anyone, so he asked no questions and nodded as though it all made sense. He was very excited. So you buried it, the mink asked, clearly impressed. Well done. Yar, said Rose in her best pirate voice. The mink locked up the map in his briefcase and very quickly stood up. Great work, Mole. I shall not forget you in my report to the panther. I must go. And with that and a rather extravagant twirl of his large black coat, the mink loped off on his long, spindly legs. As soon as he had loped off a distance, Rose's grandfather burst out laughing. <laughs> what an odd bird. What a loon. What a strange duck. And giggling, he turned back to the loaf of stale bread and the crowd of ducks. With summertime just around the corner, we thought it would be a fine time to remind you that Fenwick's Magic Emporium has everything you need for your summer magic activities. Planning a trip? Teleportation spells not working right? Come by for our high-quality griffin feathers and jade dust. Headed to the beach? We have everything you'll need. Working on a spell of water breathing? Well, then you'll need our fresh-collected snake root. Want a bracelet of shark protection plus five? Eternal floating potion? Walk on water? Speak with the dolphins? Any spell you know of, we have the ingredients. We even have a magical balm that, when applied, will protect your soft and vulnerable body from the harsh radiation of the sun. We call the potion sunscreen. And of course, for all of your everyday run-of-the-mill magic needs, we're here. Open six days a week, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Fenwick's Magic Emporium, where we bring the magic to you. Literally. Remember the directions. Two blinks past the fourth light post. Turn around, say the charm of opening, and press the fourth stone from the corner. You can't miss it.
Saturday morning, 10.35 a.m., Lutzberg Park, The Bench, by the Duck Pond. The mole, the real, actual mole coming straight from Andy's farm, was running late. Because this breakfast had been his last breakfast on the farm, he had gone big. He had luxuriated in every bite of butter-soaked, soft, melt-in-your-mouth, cinnamon and sugar and lemon-sweetened French toast. He had savored every morsel of the crisp, thick slices of bacon. He had soaked up every gooey remnant of fresh golden egg with Monica's thick-cut, fresh-baked farm toast. He had oohed with every sip of the soon-to-be-stolen chocolate milk. He had been, he had to admit, a bit of a pig. He was the last one to push away from the table, and then he made his prepared excuse. He told the farmers that he had to go into town for some baling twine and tractor fuel. He got in the old farm truck and headed out. He laughed and thumbed his nose at the rolling hills of pasture land as he drove through them for what would be, he thought, the last time. He parked in the parking lot at Lutzberg Park. He patted his pocket where he had secreted away his coded stolen recipe. He walked up to the meeting spot. An old man, an old woman, and a young girl got up from the bench by the duck pond. They passed each other. The girl waved at the mole. The mole waved back. Was it a sign? Was this girl the mink? The mole arched an eyebrow and watched them walk towards a blanket and picnic basket near the swing set. Hmm, he thought. Hmm, indeed. He sat on the bench and arched his eyebrows this way and that. Every so often, he would recross his legs. If you had been a Flarnigan's chocolate spy, you would have read the eyebrow-waggle-leg-crossing code and understood it to say, Sorry I'm late, ready to do some spying now. But no one seemed to be paying any attention except the ducks. They kept trying to peck crumbs of toast off of the mole's farm pants. The mole started to worry that something was wrong. Saturday morning, 11.15 a.m., Lutzberg Park, the picnic blanket. The Gallinghams were packing up. The picnic had been superb. Rose's grandmother was actually the greatest sandwich maker in the world. Plenty of people would have disagreed with this, but they would have been wrong. They had all enjoyed the packed food. They had all enjoyed the fine spring breeze. They had enjoyed playing I Spy while they were eating their picnic lunch. They had enjoyed watching the strange, lanky man in black lope and trot all over the park, sometimes lurking, sometimes running, sometimes digging. Rose was happy that he seemed to be having such a good time with her map. They had enjoyed watching the farmer on the bench by the pond waggle his eyebrows and cross his legs. The farmer seemed to be getting more and more frantic and pronounced with his waggling and crossing. It was, to Rose and her grandparents, rather funny. As her grandparents made the several trips to the van to pack up the picnic and park supplies, Rose decided to play along. She looked at the strange eyebrow-waggling farmer on the bench. When she had caught his eye, she unleashed a flurry of eyebrow-waggling and leg-crossing of her own. What terrific waggling! What powerful crossing! She was delighted. Still Saturday morning, still 11.15 a.m., Lutzberg Park over on the park bench. The mole was getting frantic. Yes, he knew he had been late, but even still, the mink should have been there. It was all part of the spy code. The mole had been eyebrow-waggling and leg-crossing his apologies, explanations, and excuses for nearly an hour now. He was worried and was beginning to lose hope. And then he caught the eye of the little girl on the picnic blanket. She waggled. She crossed. 
Good gravy! The mole was astonished. Her message was as clear as it was angry. You are late. You are in trouble. Deliver recipe immediately. The mole felt foolish. So she had been testing him the whole time. What a clever and talented spy was the mink. He waggled back. Are you the mink? Back on the picnic blanket, Rose was happy to see her strange farmer friend playing along. She waggled right back. The mole had never seen such mastery of the eye-waggling, ear-tugging, leg-crossing code before. Surely this mink was a genius. He translated her furious barrage of movements to, Of course, idiot! Complete the mission now! The mole swallowed. The child looked so happy and sweet, but the mink was clearly furious with him. And what a perfect disguise for the park! A little kid! The mole was clearly impressed, but he tried not to show his fear or his wonder. He quickly stood up from the bench. He fumbled the secret message out of his shirt pocket. He walked quickly by the girl on the picnic blanket. As he passed, he dropped the folded paper beside her and whispered the secret spy phrase, Chocolate forever. Rose, naturally, was in agreement. Chocolate forever, she called after the strange farmer. She watched as he hurried to a beat-up old farm truck and sped off into the morning. Rose's grandparents came back. Just one blanket and one girl left to load up, said her grandmother. Rose grabbed the folded paper, tucked it into her pocket, and skipped to the fan to load up. Late, late Saturday night, 11.23 p.m., Lutzberg Park. The mink was a mess. Dirt covered his black coat, gloves, boots, even his fancy wide-brimmed hat. It was terribly difficult to see at night wearing the dark glasses. He peered at the fiendishly clever map yet again by the light of a street lamp near the swings. What could that star mean? And the squiggle with the dots around it? What did the three hearts one inside the other mean? The mink was furious at the idea that the mole could have crafted a spy map that was too clever to be deciphered. Well, thought the mink, I'll figure it out. I'll get it. I'll find the recipe. There were holes dug, by now, all over the park. The mink, in his fever to find the recipe, had, perhaps, made some spying mistakes. For example, he had been loping and lurking and furiously digging all over a public park in a large, dark coat, hat, gloves, and glasses all day. It was enough, really, for a curious or concerned citizen to perhaps notify the police. In fact, the Lutzberg police had had a very many phone calls that day about the strange digging man in the park. In fact, the Lutzberg police had been watching the man ramble and occasionally dig his way around the park for the last several hours. They were very amused and very curious and very much about to arrest him. Sunday morning, 9 a.m. Rose Gallingham's grandparents' house. Breakfast was quite the occasion, and not just because Rose's grandmother had made her savory buttermilk biscuits. It was the news. Rose's grandfather read aloud from the newspaper with awe and laughter. It was all rather incredible. The headlines read, Secret spy ring discovered. Secret recipe gone missing. Flarnigan's chocolates shut down. According to the Lutzberg Tribune, the mink had been arrested late Saturday night, and this had led to the arrests of the panther, Mr. Flarnigan himself, as well as the mole. Flarnigan's chocolates had been shut down for rotten and sneaky business practices, and the chocolate spy division had been exposed. Spies had been uncovered in restaurants, sweet shops, and dairies all over the county. It was a huge case, and a great victory for the Lutzberg police, and all sweet lovers everywhere. 
Farmer Andy, having learned that his secret recipe had been stolen and was even now lost, put a notice in the paper asking that should any good, honest soul find the recipe, if they would please and kindly return it to him at the farm. Rose hopped down from the table with a squeak of excitement and ran to her room. She rummaged through the pockets of her pants from the day before, and there was the folded piece of paper. She ran out and triumphantly displayed it to her grandparents. They couldn't make heads or tails of the strange coated gibberish, but they all agreed that this must be the missing recipe. That afternoon, the three of them drove out to Farmer Andy's dairy in the old van. They handed over the recipe, and farmers Andy and Monica thanked them heartily. The Gallinghams were promised free chocolate milk as much as they could drink for all of their days. The farm was a wonderful place, and Andy and Monica made quick friends with Rose's grandparents. When Rose's parents finally came back from their anniversary weekend, they drove straight to the dairy farm. There, they heard all the details of the incredible weekend, and everyone feasted on Farmer Monica's incredible cooking. Flarnigan and his team of spies were all sent to jail, where they were not allowed any sweets ever, especially no chocolate milk. The end. Well, folks, that music means that this small town adventure is coming to an end. Benedettiville is Geo, Jen, Stella, and Emmeline Benedetti. All the stories and silliness you heard on this episode were written and created by Benedettiville, and the music you heard this afternoon was also created by Benedettiville. A special thanks to our guest, Matthew Harris, for his participation in today's episode. And we would also like to thank McKinley students, Marielle, Gigi, Andres, Disha, Matilda, Ursula, and Huck. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Cheeseland, Fenwick's Magic Emporium, and Pancake Magazine, and coffee. We are always grateful for coffee. We want to hear from our listeners. Please send us your story ideas, bits of local news, or just drop us a line and say hi. Our email address is mail at benedettiville.com. And our new P.O. Box number located at the Mail Depot in downtown Petaluma is P.O. Box 336 at the Mail Depot, 44th Street in Petaluma, 94952. Tune in next week, Sunday, 3 p.m. on kpca.fm. Or live on the radio, 103.3 FM in Petaluma. You can listen to previous episodes of Small Town Adventures on our podcast. Just search Benedettiville wherever podcasts can be found or link to it from our website at benedettiville.com. Until then, let's all do something nice for each other, folks. <laughs>